0: You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Well, let me say first of all that it's a joy to be back. It is um, wonderful always to be with you, whether I'm here for an ordination An installation or just to break God's Word. It's always uh, uh, fun to be with you, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to bring you God's Word today. I do bring you greetings from your crosstown sister church. Um, And uh, 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 also, uh, before I begin uh, with God's Word, I do want to offer one thought and comment to you, and I'm sure that. Um, this is not something you've forgotten and not something that you would neglect, but I do um, want to offer a pastoral word. Um, I have been and my elders have been and my church has been uh, very thankful for the last two years to have uh, the fellowship and the fellow laboring uh, with your pastor, John Jones, and I just want to uh, remind you that not every church, including unfortunately not every Presbyterian church or Reformed church, enjoys the benefits of the kind of pastor that you have in John Jones. Faithful, humble dedicated servant of the Lord with a wonderful family whose lives reflect their faith and I would urge you to daily give thanks for the gift that he is to you and to daily pray for him and for Karen and the family that God will continue to uh, use them in leading and feeding and nurturing your congregation here at faith. Again, I'm sure you don't need that reminder, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Now, our text today is found in the second chapter of the book of Exodus, beginning at the 11th verse. And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out into his brethren and looked on their burdens, and he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that, and when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together, and he said to them that did the wrong, why do you smite your fellow? And the man said, Who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Now when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from before the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to fill their to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to rule their father, he said, how is it that you came so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and also drew water enough for us and watered the flock. And he said unto his daughters, where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses Zipporah his daughter, and she bare him a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we ask you for your mercy and your grace as we study your word together. We ask that you would minister to our spirits, to our minds, that we would have understanding, to our hearts, that we would have obedient wills, to our hands, that we would implement the teachings of your holy word. We thank you for this message from the book of Exodus, inculcated into our thinking and our behavior, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, the book of Exodus, in its general outlines, is un- undoubtedly familiar to all of you, but the book of Exodus is a fascinating book to study, not only because of the story it tells, but because of the way it's written. Uh, the, book of Mo, the, book, uh, the second book of Moses, the book of Exodus, is a very carefully compiled story. Um, it's not like a novel. It utilizes, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Moses utilized a common and well understood at that time, Uh, literary structure to put this book together. And when you examine the book from uh, from the concept of that literary structure, it begins to unfold itself in ways that we don't notice if we just read it as if it were a novel or a biography of Moses. And This structure repeats itself all the way through the book. And when you identify it, you can notice that there are stories within stories. And the text that we just read, verses 11 through 22 uh, in the second chapter, is a unit that utilizes that structure. Now, There's a fancy Greek word for this thing. I'm not going to bother to tell it to you because you'd forget it by the time you leave today anyway because most of you don't speak Greek. Um, So I won't waste your time with that, but what I tell you is that the structure looks like this. Um, it, It diagrams very nicely in a V configuration. Now, it doesn't always have the same amount of elements in it It doesn't always look exactly the same, but it always has this basic structure that points to a center. Um, In this particular case, it has five elements. Sometimes it has seven, sometimes it has eight, sometimes it has nine, doesn't matter. In this particular case, it has five. And the first two, uh, the first and the last are pairs, and the second element and the Fourth element are pairs. And the fifth element is what we call the hinge or the pivot. And in this particular case, so it has like an A, B, C, B, A kind of an arrangement. And in this particular case, the C element's the hinge or the pivot, and it's found in the first half of the 15th verse. When Pharaoh hears what Moses has done, and determines to kill him. That's the center of this little short story within the larger story of Exodus. And what surrounds that are two pairs that are matched to each other, the A elements and the B elements. And when we, when, as we walk through this today, you'll see how this drives home a particular message that is both valuable and practical for God's people of any age. Because it tells us something about what God is doing with Moses, moving him from one state to another state, and I don't mean from Egypt to Midian. I mean one state of behavior to another. And all hinging around the threat of death that comes from his step-grandfather, the pharaoh. So, here's how it plays out. In verses 11 and 12, we see Moses at 40 years of age having his coming-out party, right? He's emerged now from his life of becoming a powerful or potentially powerful prince in Egypt. We all know the miraculous story of how he was rescued from the slaughter of the innocents. Interesting parallels to Jesus, by the way, in the Moses story. Um, And we all know how he was rescued in the reeds by the Pharaoh's daughter and sent off to a wet nurse that happened to be his own mother, Um, under the care of his sister Miriam, who plays another larger role in the story later on, and how then he grew up in Pharaoh's house. And growing up in Pharaoh's house, of course, he was was given all the advantages of the aristocracy of Egypt at the time. He graduated with a master's degree in engineering from Cairo University. Right? Kidding, of course, but, but that's the concept. He was given all those privileges and he was able to imbibe the culture and the wisdom of Egypt. He was trained to be a prince, probably trained in the arts of war and chariot handling and so forth. But he also knew who he was. The text makes that clear. In the probably about five years that he lived in Jochebed's house. Well, Jochebed was his mother. He no doubt learned his catechism. He knew who the Hebrews were. And throughout all of his training and instruction in the Pharaoh's house, he never forgot his heritage. And so now he emerges at 40 years of age as a powerful aristocrat and he's determined to do God's work. The situation of his Hebrews is not a just one. Now, it's not nearly as bad at this point as we'll get later, but it's not a just situation. And he is determined to fix that. And he goes out in the field and he sees an Egyptian oppressing one of his brethren. And so he rectifies the situation. At least from his standpoint, he's doing God's work. He's protecting one of God's people. But there's only one problem. He's doing God's work the Egyptian way. He's doing God's work man's way. There's not one hint anywhere in the Scripture that the proper way to deal with an Egyptian oppressing a Hebrew is to look both ways make sure nobody's looking and kill the guy and bury his body in the sand. Now, we don't Solve spiritual heritage problems by committing murder. That might be the way the Egyptians do it, but it's not the way God's people do it. So in the first element of this story, we see Moses with good intentions trying to do God's work man's way. And of course, we all know that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And that's the road Moses starts down here. Now, let's jump to the end of the story and look at how this pairs up with how the story ends in verse 22. In verses 21 and 22, Moses is in a completely different situation. He's no longer in Egypt. He's now in Midian. He fled Egypt because Pharaoh found an opportunity to do away with him and he wasn't too hot on that idea. So he left town. And he ends up out in Midian. And yes, we'll come back to the middle of the story in a minute. But at the end of this this story, what's he doing? No longer do we find the highly bred, well-situated, and perhaps a little bit arrogant Moses who emerges at 40 years of age and decides to do God's work man's way. No, now we don't have a guy who lives in the Pharaoh's house. We don't have a guy who's able to consider himself a powerful aristocrat. We find Moses at this point a simple shepherd taking care of a flock of sheep. And they aren't even his sheep. They belong to his father-in-law. What's happened in this time period, which by the way covers about 40 years, because we're just about to chapter 3, and in chapter 3 is when he meets God at the burning bush, and we're told specifically right after that, God sends him back to Egypt, and he's 80 years old. So from chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 11, to chapter, uh, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> to chapter 2, verse 23, 40 years go by. And Moses is now a humble shepherd of his father-in-law's flock. I don't think we're intended to miss an important connection here. Moses is a shepherd. Now when you get over to the New Testament, discover that Jesus is the good shepherd. But not only that, the word for pastor in the New Testament is the word shepherd. Instead of Moses now being a somewhat arrogant aristocrat who thinks he knows how to fix God's problems or the problems of God's people, Moses has been put into the position that requires first and foremost as a characteristic, humility. He's not, when I say he's a humble shepherd, it's not merely that he's humble in terms of income that, you know, he moved from a palace to a humble home. That may be true. But shepherding, according to the instructions of Holy Writ, requires selflessness, humility. And as a matter of fact, if when we get over to the early chapters of the book of Numbers, we're told something very important about Moses. The Holy Spirit of God tells us in holy writ that Moses was the most humble man ever to walk the face of the earth. That's what the inspired word of God says. How did he get there? He got there by God moving him out of the palace and putting him in charge of sheep that he doesn't even own. And so what we find, and of course you, I could refer you to Jeremiah 29, where God says when you're in a, when you're in a, a strange city or a strange location, and you, know, you don't have the ability to, to uh, uh, go to my temple the way you we would normally do if you were in Jerusalem, just get married, raise kids, and tend to your business, and honor the Lord in all your doings. In other words, Humbly submit to the situation God's put you in. And that's what God has done to Moses here. And so, when we get to the 21st and 22nd verse, instead of a man who's trying to do God's work man's way, we see him doing man's work God's way. There's been a complete reversal in the story. Now, in between, what happens Well, okay, so in verse 12, we see him being confronted with the fact that his murder is known. Oh, no, we don't either. Um, At at the end of verse 12, we see him having murdered this guy and buried him in the sand, right? Man doing God's work, uh, pardon me, Moses doing God's work man's way, results in murder. And in verses 13 and 14, he goes out the next day and he sees two hebrews going at it and he separates them and he says you know you shouldn't be doing this and the guy says, looks at him and he goes who made you the boss you're 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 no, you know you're going to you're going to act as if you have moral superiority to me because i'm arguing with my brother yesterday i saw you murder a guy where do you get this moral superiority moses What's happened? When Moses graduated from the University of Cairo as the Pharaoh's grandson, he had standing. Now, because he set out to do God's work man's way, what's he lost? His credibility. His credibility. Moses at this point in his life would probably be sympathetic with Mrs. Clinton, who has now managed to lose her credibility. I just saw a poll, 79% of people in the United States think that she lies. Wow, what a surprise. But that's where Moses is. He's lost his credibility. The Hebrews look at him and go, give me a break. Why in the world would we trust you? He's completely lost his credibility in verses 12 and 13, or 13 and 14. Now, how does that pair up? Well, you go to the other side of the, of the pivot and you've got verses, the last half of verse 15 through 20, a little longer segment, but it hangs together and tells a story. What happens in this part of the story? Moses runs away from the Pharaoh's threat and he ends up on the far side of Mount Horeb, it's quite a few miles across the Sinai Peninsula to the land where a bunch of Midianite people, shepherds, several shepherd families are living. And he decides, I've been treading, I've been walking long enough, I'm gonna sit down and take a break. And he sits down next to a well. I mean, he comes to an oasis basically is what happens. And he sits down at this oasis where there's fresh water And these girls come along, Rule's daughters. And they're preparing to water their flock. But, there's this rough and tumble other shepherd family who are men. Not gentlemen, but men. And they run off rules daughters, sheep, and push their own herd into the oasis to get watered. And what does Moses do? This is very interesting. Now, we don't know how long it took him to trek across the desert, but apparently he's been thinking things over. And in this element of the story, what happens? He gets up and does the right thing. He doesn't murder anybody, you notice that? But what he does do is he says, hey, you guys, the ladies were here first. Take a hike. Now, you know, you get the impression that Moses was not a wimp. I mean, he dispatches an Egyptian, we're not told how, but he does it very quickly, and he buries the guy in the sand all by himself. That's clear from the text. And now he runs off a bunch of, Bedouin shepherds on behalf of some ladies. Chivalry arises in the desert. Now, what happens? The girls all curtsy and say thank you and then they trot on home to dinner and their dad says, did I blow my parental job here and raising these girls what do you mean he rescued you and you didn't bring him home for dinner what kind of hospitality is that and so the girls go back out and they tell Moses my father's invited you to dinner and he comes to dinner and of course that's the beginning of the end right I mean he ends up marrying one of the daughters but the point of that part of the story beloved is it's clearly in the text set in opposition to what happened with the two Hebrew guys in Egypt before Moses fled. We see him trying to do God's work man's way. As a result of that, he loses credibility. Then, Moses, then, then Pharaoh threatens to kill him. He runs away. He treks across the desert. And when he gets to the land of Midian, to the land of rule, He's beginning to be transformed. And what happens? He gains credibility. You see how this story works? You've got this nosedive from doing God's work man's way to loss of credibility, to the threat against his life. He crosses the desert. When he gets on the other side of the desert, he starts rebuilding his credibility. He does something right. And that moves him to the place then where what? He settles down, he gets married, he memorializes the fact that he's an exile in the name of his son, and then we see him accepting and laboring over time as a shepherd, as a pastor, leading a flock getting to the place where he's prepared, where he's been humbled, where he's ready for the encounter of the burning bush that comes in the third chapter. Okay, so I've walked you through the story. God brings us sometimes, this story tells us, to the point of having lost our credibility and on the verge of losing our life. Now, maybe not always literally and physically, as it was in the case of Moses, but he brings us to the place of death before he begins to resurrect us. And that's what you have here. You have the decline of an arrogant, overconfident uh, man who thinks he can fix God's problems all by himself. Who then completely loses his credibility among God's people. God drives him out under the wrath of his grandfather, step grandfather. And God moves him across the desert and gives him an opportunity to begin to rebuild his credibility and finally brings him to the position of being a faithful, humble shepherd for 40 years. You know what's interesting? is that we have a guy in the New Testament whose situation is almost the same. It's remarkably similar. I'll start telling you a story, and you tell me, or you can wave at me or smile or something when you, take a, tell, when you figure out who it is. It won't take you very long. All right, this guy was also born into a wealthy family. He had every advantage of good education. Interestingly enough, a good education in the classics. Graduated from one of the best universities in this case, I'm not joking. One of the best universities in the ancient world. And then went to study at the greatest seminary of his time. At the foot of the greatest professor of theology of his age a guy by the name of Gamaliel. And this guy rose up to become one of the most powerful Pharisees in the country. Sat on the Sanhedrin, the most powerful religious body of his time. And he determined that it was his job to protect God's dignity. And so when some upstart comes along and claims to be the Messiah and claims to have died for his people's sins and risen from the dead and has gathered around himself in his resurrection and ascension a body of ragtag fishermen and tax collectors who have been are going around disturbing the, religious, the religion of the day by what? Proclaiming that the Messiah has come as a, sh- a carpenter's son and he rose from the dead? This has to be stamped out and it has to be stamped out quickly. And so Saul, the Pharisee, the graduate of the University of Tarsus, arrogantly sets out to do God's work man's way. And he's rounding up Christians. You read from Stephen's sermon today, chapter 7, Acts. What happens at the end of that? Stephen gives this great sermon about Moses. Wish I could give a great sermon about Moses. I'll have to settle for a good sermon about Moses, I hope it'll not be great like stevens. so if you came here to hear stevens you might as well leave. but anyway, stephen gives this great sermon and what happens at the end? what happens at the end is what i hope doesn't happen at the end of my sermon. the people listening pick up rocks and throw them at him until he's dead. and guess who gave the nod of approval for that? saul. saul And what does Saul do after that? He goes about like a raging lion consuming the church. And God strikes him down on the road to Damascus. He has a death experience. Moses had a death experience at the threat of his his grandfather. Paul has a, great, a death experience, and what happens? God raises him from the dead and turns him into a humble shepherd of the flock. And God uses him to a greater extent than anyone else in that era to bring the gospel to the full breadth of the Roman Empire. I have no doubt in my mind, beloved, that he got as far as Iberia. That's why he went to Rome. That's why he wrote to Rome. So they support him on his Iberian quest. You know, there's some gaps in our record of Paul's experience. But there's, there's perfectly good reason to believe that God sent him to Siberia, I- Iberia, I'm sorry, just like he said he was planning to when he went to Rome. It doesn't matter. The point is, the Roman Empire on both sides of the of the Mediterranean were converted to Christianity by the result of this guy who started out trying to destroy the church. So you see the parallels between Moses and Paul. This tells us something, beloved. It tells us that this is the way God works. He takes us, the raw material is there, but it's all twisted around and put in the wrong order. And we go out there trying to do God's work man's way, and we fall flat on our face. And God has to bring us to a death experience so that he can rebuild us in the right way. And that's what he did to Moses. That's what he did to St. Paul. Moses' original approach has to be abandoned. In Egypt, he was working to fulfill the promise given to Abraham in his own name. I'm Moses, I was raised from the dead. They tried to kill me when I was a baby. I came out of the reeds. Now I'm powerful. I'll fix this problem for you, my brothers, my Hebrew brothers. And it goes nowhere. It goes nowhere. God has to bring him under the threat of death and make him flee Egypt and go out to the other side of the desert and spend 40 years there learning how to be a shepherd a shepherd and then God calls him and sends him back to Egypt and we all know the rest of the story God powerfully uses Moses to bring redemption to his people to bring them out of Egypt and to take them to the promised land and and I'll tell you what the next 40 years I mean the guy lived to 120 I don't you're right Jim I don't know where those three decades went. The good thing is neither one of us is any older, right? All right. But think about it. That's just three decades. We're not even up to the point where Moses gets to leave Egypt. He's 40 years in Egypt. He's 40 years in in Midian with rule. And then he's 40 years being a shepherd to the most unruly congregation anybody ever had to pastor. I mean, you know, you've read the books, right? They were a royal pain to a guy who's no longer royal. Well, anyway, okay. I'm thankful for John's sake that he doesn't have a congregation like that. And I'm thankful for my own sake that I don't have a congregation like that. I don't know what I'd do if I had to deal with the people Moses had to deal with. Probably the same thing he did, get on his knees a number of times and say, God, why have you put me in this spot? I think once in the 32 years I've been a pastor at Covenant Bible Church, I kind of felt that way. Um, and God, look, you know, God proved himself strong and got us through that difficulty. But um, Okay, so we start out in Egypt. He's working to fulfill the promise of Abraham in his own name. God takes him to Midian. God prepares him to understand his ways. Then he reveals himself and sends him back. And when he gets back to Egypt, Moses doesn't appear in his name. He appears in God's name. Remember, the first thing he asked God at the burning bush was, "Uh, uh, who do I tell him sent me? I mean, obviously, I'm not going to go in there and say, hey, you remember me? I'm Moses. I was the king guy 40 years ago. Now, he says, who do I say sent me? See, think about that. There's a completely different shift in his attitude. I'm now going on God's behalf. I'm not going on my own behalf. I'm going. And what does God do? This is where God specifically for the first time reveals his covenant name. The name of God that reflects a God who makes promises and keeps them. I am that I am. One of the things that we hear ourselves and other Christians say sometimes, or many of us have probably prayed this one time or another. Well, you know, I want to do God's work, but I got to make sure that I do it in his strength. I can't do God's work in my strength. You ever pray that? God, I don't want to try to do this in my strength. I mean, or if you said it to, some, to yourself or to some other people, you know, I was doing this and I was trying to do it in my own strength and I didn't survive. Um, I need to do it in God's strength. Well, you know, that's a good sentiment. Um, it, 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 uh, it, it, it reflects a heart that says, you know, I need something from God to do God's work. But you know what? I'm not convinced there's anywhere in the scripture that actually tells us that sort of story. Now, we have a verse in Philippians that we quote to support it and stuff. But here's what I think. I don't think it's a matter of strength, beloved. I think it has nothing to do with strength. I mean, think about Moses for a second. He was clearly a strong guy. I mean, you don't go run off a bunch of, you know, ruly shepherds of the desert because you're a wimp. You don't kill somebody with your bare hands or a short knife or whatever and bury him in the sand and expect it to be I mean, to do it quickly enough to actually expect it to be, to be un, unseen or un, unknown, unknown. if you're a wimp, Moses was a strong guy. Strength was not the problem. What was the problem? Wisdom. Wisdom. He did not understand how God works. He did not understand that there's a time that God is going to move, and there's a time in which God is expecting His people to wait. I mean, God had the people wait another 40 years, and things got a lot worse than they had been 40 years earlier. Moses did not lack strength, beloved. He lacked understanding. And we see the same thing with Paul. You know, Paul was clearly powerful. But what does God say to him when he strikes him down? Look, quit kicking against the goads quit running against my program well why did he run against God's program because he was weak no because he you know his strength was the wrong sort of strength no it's because he didn't understand what happened God had to open his eyes and he does it literally make sure we get the picture right he blinds him and then when he's converted under the ministry of Ananias his eyes are opened nice metaphor All right, I mean, to think it really happened, but it's also a nice metaphor. It teaches us something. All right, now listen, I'd like to, I'm going to wrap this up in a moment, but I want to read for you, or to you, from the third chapter of the book of Proverbs. Notice what Solomon, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us to do and how to think about this. First eight verses. My son, forget not my law. But let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace they shall add to you. Do not let mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them about your neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. See, Moses wasn't seen as wise in man's eyes. Think of the rejection in chapter in verse 13. He was certainly not wise in God's eyes. In fact, it took a while to wise up because a little later, there's a nice little parallel to this as he comes back towards Egypt. It's not Pharaoh trying to kill him. It's God's going to kill him because he didn't keep God's covenant. Another story for another time. Okay, but let's go on. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own strength. Is that what verse 5 says? No. If you're following along, you'll notice that's not what it says. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. Honor the Lord with thy substance and with thy first fruit of all thine increase. Okay, so Solomon is telling us that our problem isn't strength or lack of it or the wrong kind of it. He said our problem is lack of understanding and wisdom. And what we're supposed to do is turn to God for wisdom And understanding. Now I'm going to skip down in the same chapter to verse 19. The Lord by wisdom has founded the earth, and by understanding he has established the heavens. By his knowledge the depths are broken up, and the clouds drop down the dew. My son, let them not depart from thine eyes. Let not what? The wisdom and the knowledge of God. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. So shall they be life. What will be life? Wisdom and discretion. Discretion. So shall they be life to thy soul and grace to thy neck. Then thou shalt walk in thy way safely and thy foot shall not stumble. Moses' foot stumbled because he lacked the wisdom of God. We often stumble because we lack the wisdom of God. But God's wisdom is not hidden. Paul makes a big deal of that in 1 Corinthians, remember? It's not hidden. It's given to us. God has made unto, Christ, unto us Christ as wisdom and redemption and holiness. Then shalt thy walk in thy way safely, and thy foot shall not stumble. When thou liest down, thou shalt not be afraid. Yea, thou shalt lie down, and thy sleep shall be sweet. Be not afraid of sudden, uh, of sudden fear, neither of the desolation of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord shall be thy confidence and shall keep thy foot from being kicked out from under you. I translated that Hebrew for you because it was obscure. All right. What's the principal thing? In fact, Solomon says that specifically Or The principal thing is to get wisdom. See, we often... Go about doing God's work man's way because we don't imbibe the scriptures, we don't understand the wisdom of God, we don't have patience enough for the wisdom of God. That's our shortcoming. It's not strength we lack. It's not having the wrong kind of strength, beloved. It's lacking the wisdom that comes from imbibing the word of God. And if we will focus upon that, if we will do what Moses finally does and take God's promise seriously and not try to do His work our way, but try to do our work His way, then we will honor God's name and our way will be prosperous. I'll close with one other verse. Probably heard this one before. First chapter of the book of Joshua. Moses is dead. God has commissioned Joshua to take his place. And what does he say to him? Joshua, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. As I was with Moses, so shall I be with thee. And then God gives him some counsel. It's not advice. It's counsel. In fact, it's a command. He says, here's what you got to do, Joshua. Do not let, this is kind of a double negative, but he says, do not let the word of God cease from coming out of your mouth. Now, in simple 21st century English, what he says to to Joshua is, don't stop speaking my word. Let the word of God be constantly on your lips. That's the first thing he says to Joshua. Then what does he say next? He says, uh, uh, constantly study my law and meditate on it. And by the way, the word meditate in that verse is literally chew the cud. How many of you have been around cattle in your life? Yeah, I used to raise polled herefords. And, you know, what they do is they go out and they crop, crop, crop grass. I mean, they eat so much grass in one day. You go, how how can you eat it that fast and digest it? Well, they can't. They digest, I mean, they don't, they imbibe it and it goes down into one of their stomachs. I won't bore you with all the technical names of it. Then what do they do? They go sit in the shade of the apple tree. And if you watch them, you see this lump come up their neck. You could literally see it come up. And then they sit there and chew. And they chew and they chew. And then they swallow it again. It goes into a different place where it actually starts being digested. And then what do they do? you see them swallow it. And then psh, here comes this other little lump. And they sit there and chew it. Well, that's, a, that's a, a visual image of what God tells Joshua. Look, he says, I want you to ruminate on it. That's literally the word we, for chewing the cud. I want you to ruminate on my word. Eat it. And then bring it back up mentally and chew on it. And then God gives him promise. Right? He says, don't be dismayed. Know that I will be with you. Echoed by Jesus, of course. I will be with you till the end of the age. Meditate, on, study my word. Meditate on it. Oh, and one more thing. Don't turn to, from it to the right or to the left. Walk a straight line based on my word. Right? Those are the steps God gives him. And then he makes him a promise. What does he say? Then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. Then thou shalt have good success. Prosperity, not just... I don't want anybody to go away from here and say that you heard you know, name it and claim it theology today at Faith Baptist, uh, Faith Baptist yes, Faith Baptist. <laughs> that was Freudian. Um, but that's where, anyway. Okay, so I don't want anybody to go away and say that that's what was preached at Faith Presbyterian today. That's not what I'm talking about. Although God does give manifold blessings to us, including temporal blessings. There's no question about that when we're faithful. But good success as a faithful believer. Good success as an element in building Christ's kingdom. I mean, that's certainly the context for, jo- for Joshua, right? And he says, then shalt thou have good success. Then your way will be prosperous and you will have good success in the things that I've sent you forth to do. That's the promise. But it's always conditioned on knowing God's word and obeying God's word. We can't do it Moses' early way. We have to do it Moses' later way. We have to submit ourselves to the death and resurrection so that we come back in humility, imbibing God's word, chewing on it, obeying it, walking faithfully in it, And when God's church, when the church of Jesus Christ does that, God communicates to us the same promise that he communicated to Joshua. Then the church in its faithfulness will be prosperous and we will see success. In South Central Alaska, that means seeing more people. Walking with faithful, in faithfulness. We, we see, it, it, it means seeing this congregation and the congregation in Chugiak and the new congregations in Fairbanks and Soldatna filled with people who want to serve Jesus Christ, who want to walk and do God's work, God's way, and man's work, God's way. That's the aim. That's the objective. Jesus told us to pray for that, didn't he? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and earth as it is in heaven. And with the promises of God, in following the pattern set by the story of Moses, we can see that happen. We can see faith Presbyterian Church in South Anchorage pushing back the darkness, causing the precious Reformed faith. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ tearing down the strongholds of wickedness in the city of Anchorage, in the Matsu Valley, in all of Alaska. by the mercy and grace of God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your truth. Thy word is truth. We pray that you would cause each of us and this congregation as a whole to turn faithfully, consistently, to seek the wisdom of your word, to humble ourselves, to not be, have to be forced into fleeing from Pharaoh, or being struck down on the road to Damascus, but that we would truly humble ourselves and receive the power of your truth, the opening of our eyes, the expanding of our understanding, and the inculcation of wisdom that we might walk faithfully with our God and that we might faithfully reflect the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in this town, in this time, We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.